Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. And you know, Steve, I have a feeling Billy Chappell isn't pitching against the Yankees. He's pitching against time. Chappell, you suck! You can always tell when I'm in New York. And tonight, he might be able to use that aching old arm one more time to push the sun back up in the sky and give us one more day of summer. Yeah, that'll fix it. Thank you. You saved my day. You like baseball? What? Would you like to go to a baseball game with me? Billy, if she don't want to go, I'll go. How do you like to be kissed? Heartbroken. Yeah. When we lost the pennant, 87. So are you my mom's boyfriend? I'm not sure. But you've sucked with her. I need a regular guy, not the guy on the Old Spice commercial. Who's right guard? I was being metaphorical. Little boys buy cards with your picture on they them. They buy those for the gum. <laughs> That's the problem, Billy. Talk to me. You don't want to talk. You just want to give me your version of why she'd quit. I mean, haven't you ever loved anything that much? I don't know if I have anything left. You just throw whatever you got, whatever's left. The boys are all here for you. We're going to be awesome for you right now. You can win or lose the game all by yourself. You don't need me. Don't go. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to celebrate the 2019 opening baseball season with the 1999 movie For Love of the Game. Now, the studio was Universal Pictures. The release date was September 17th, 1999. The running time is 138 minutes. The rating is PG-13. The budget was $50 million, and it was a box office bust, making only back $35 $35 million domestic. It was the 57th top-grossing film in 1999. Now, the critics' consensus of this from Rotten Tomatoes, well, first, it was 45% rotten from 93 reviews. And again, the consensus was, baseball wins, romance loses, which is pretty much the argument for a lot of people here. Uh, Roger Ebert gives it 1.5 out of 4 stars. And so here is his review. Uh, you know those quizzes where they run that they run in women's magazines about testing your relationship. For love of the game is about those kind about the kinds of people who give the wrong answers. It's the most soppy love story in many of a moon. A step backwards for director Sam Raimi after a simple plan. 
And yet another movie in which Kevin Costner plays a character who has all the right window dressing, but is neither juicy nor interesting. Costner plays Billy Chappell, a 40-year-old pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, facing retirement at the end of a mediocre season. As the film opens, he set the stage for a candlelight dinner in a New York hotel, but his date never arrives. He drinks the champagne and all the booze in the minibar, and then the next day he wakes up with a hangover and learns that A, crusty old Mr. Wheeler is selling the team because his sons don't want it, and B, he's being traded. Oh yeah, and C, Jane, the girl he's waiting for, is leaving him and taking a job in London because, quote, you don't need me. You're perfect with you and the ball and the diamond. Not what you really want to hear when you're facing retirement. The movie has a screenplay that lumbers between past and present like regret on a death march. Billy suits up for his final game of the season and he starts pitching. Uh, we get the, the five-year earlier card and then the movie cuts back and forth between his quest to pitch a perfect game and his memories, memories of uh, their love affair. Will he pitch a perfect game or save the relationship? Or will he throw a home run pitch in the bottom of the ninth while the girl disappears? What is your best guess? Five years earlier, he first encountered Jane, Kelly Preston, when he was when he saw her kicking her rented VW by the side of an expressway. He's able to get the car running again and likes her at first sight, even though she doesn't know who he is until the tow truck guy says, Hey, you're Billy Chapel. He is indeed a baseball great, and soon she's complaining, I just need a regular guy, not the guy in the old Spice commercials. To which Kevin Costner says, It was right guard. I was being metaphorical, she says. She's also not thrilled by kids who collect his picture on bubblegum cards. They buy them for the gum, he says, revealing he's seriously out of touch. Today's wise child preserves the original rappers and finances his college education by selling them on eBay. The rhythm of the relationship quickly grows sour. She keeps turning up and he keeps pushing her away and then needing her when she's gone. She weeps when they're together. He weeps when they're apart. Typical crisis. One winter weekend, he unwisely is sawing some lumber with a rotary saw and cuts his hand. She packs it in snow, but isn't allowed on the medevac helicopter and is dissed by the obligatory rude nurse eat in the ER. Are you his wife? And she is crushed when Billy tells her that the team trainer is the most important person for me right now. Another crisis. He's in Boston for a game and gets a panic call. Her daughter runs away from home and gone to Boston to seek her dad, who wasn't at home, and now she's alone in the big city. Billy didn't know she had a daughter. What's her name, he asks. Freedom, she says. Scared you, didn't I? It's Heather. Just the sort of quip a mother would, <laughs> would make during a panic call. In a wittier movie, she would have said, Heather, scared you, didn't I? It's Freedom. The screenplay, written by Dana Stevens and based on a novel by Ma Michael Shara, includes getting to know you stuff like, do you like white, meek, or dark? Jealousy, she's my masseuse. And sports lore, all of the guys are here for you, Billy. Some of the sports scene consists of Costner on the mound, lost in thought. At one point, the catcher is concerned because he's staring at the clouds. But there are some nice details, as when he shuts out all of the crowd noises, and when he has direct running monologue of each batter he faces. And of course, no sports movie has any trouble building the suspense at the end of a big game. The ending is routine, false crisis, false dawn, real crisis, real dawn. Only a logician would, be, would wonder why two people would meet in a place where neither one of them have the slightest reason to be. Thinking back through this movie, I can't recall a single thing either character said that was worth hearing in its own right, apart from the requirements of the plot. No wait, 
She asks him, what if my face was all scraped off and I was basically disfigured and had no arms and no legs, something else, I can't read my handwriting, would you still love me? And she re- and he replies, no, but we could still be friends. And that's the end of the review. So what I really find interesting about Ebert's review is that he really doesn't touch upon what makes the movie really good, and that is the baseball scenes. Pretty much everything negative from the article is about the romance angle, and that is not an uncommon gripe and and likely why this movie flopped when it was released in 1999. And my guess is that Ebert really wasn't much of a baseball fan and therefore focused on something that he could really sink his teeth into, which is the romantic side. I, I got to admit, the, the love story angle has grown on me as I've gotten older. But when I first saw the movie, um, I pretty much agree with Ebert because in 1999, I was 21 and simply wanted to see the baseball scenes. Uh, you know, my dad, on the other hand, thinks it's one of the greatest, <laughs> greatest baseball movies ever made. Pretty much because of the baseball scenes, not because of the story. If he were to tell you the, the best baseball movie, he would say Bull Durham. Now, we maybe we'll have him on sometime to talk about it. So the main cast, of course, is Kevin, Kevin Costner, who plays Billy Chappell. And of course, when you think of Kevin Costner, sports movies, and especially baseball, comes to mind. Prior to this film, he starred in one of the best baseball movies ever, like I just said, and that's Bull Durham. And then he followed it up the next year with the equally stellar Field of Dreams. What always made Costner so great in sports movies is that he truly is an athlete. And my, my dad always used to point out to me, Watch how someone throws the ball. This is a true test to see if, it, if someone is an athlete or not. A throwing motion is really a thing of beauty and can be the source of truth when someone claims if they can play ball or not. Hunter Pence being the exception. <laughs> All right, Kelly Preston plays Jane Aubrey, and Preston had been acting in TV and film since the early 80s as a teenager, including some fun films like Mischief and Secret Admirer and Space Camp and Twins. She really made headlines, though, by marrying John Travolta in 1991, and her film work was kind of sparse when it came to well-known films, though she did have a good character part in Jerry Maguire's Tom Cruise's girlfriend before he meets Renee Zellweger. John C. Riley plays Gus Siniski, and before he became synonymous with comedy and Will Ferrell movies, Riley was in a variety of films as a character actor, and those movies include Days of Thunder, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Boogie Nights, and Never Been Kissed, and the funny part about Never Been Kissed is he was also named Gus. So the director is Sam Raimi, and Raimi was a huge baseball fan and, and just loved the script and really loved getting into the pitcher's head into the middle, in the middle of a game. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like a way for him to break through the wall of simply watching a game on TV. Now, of course, Raimi was known for the movie Evil Dead. He also um, directed all the, the Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire. But I, I think this movie kind of gets a bad rap because I maybe he focused mainly on the baseball scenes because he's such a big baseball fan. And, and the love story was trying to get everyone involved here. So it could be for... Um, you know, people that don't just necessarily like baseball, but the problem was it just, even people that didn't like baseball didn't really like the romantic angle of it. So you kind of alienated everyone (laughs) in some ways, but I'm telling you, if you like baseball, it's worth it just for that. And I, I think if you give it a chance, the love story isn't as bad as to make it out to be. All right, so my thoughts on the film itself. That you know, the film begins with uh, actual home movies when Costner uh, was a kid playing ball, so you get to see his real parents, and and we see newspaper clippings of the Detroit Tigers, you know, uh, 
featuring the starting pitcher Billy Chapel, who of course is Costner. And we get to see these throughout the, his career, and it was cool to see these mock articles and how he dominated in the 1984 World Series, which the Tigers were in. Uh, they actually won that season against the San Diego Padres, but in reality, the dominating pitcher that year was Jack Morris. He was the ace of the club back then. Essentially, he was the Billy Chapel of his day. Two out, ninth inning, bases empty. Tigers three, Padres two. First, this ought to do it. Bergman to the bag, and the lights go out on game one in San Diego. Jack Morris goes all the way, retires the last six in a row. He was threatened. The Padres had him on the ropes, and he had the ability to get off the ropes, and they couldn't put him away. The key plays again. They left Gwynn at second. They had first and second, and nobody out in the sixth. They couldn't do it, and Bavacqua out at third. The 84 team was uh, really a unique story because it was a culmination of uh, some time. There was no nonsense. I mean, we could play. I mean, we could have fun. But when it came time to cross the white line and start the game, you better give 100% or you're going to get called out on it. Sparky came over in 79 and it took him a few years to impregnate us with his philosophy and buy into the team spirit, the, the unity, uh, respect the uniform, play hard. Lou Whitaker is probably the best defensive second baseman that I ever played with. I've played with some great ones, but if I had one guy to play defensively behind me, it's Lou Whitaker because he could do things that none of those other guys could do. He could hit, he could get on base. You know, he was a small guy at the beginning, came very strong, but swung the bat just played the game. He just was a natural born baseball player. Tram was the instigator. He was the guy that would stir the pot and then hide and nobody would know who stirred the pot. And then we'd look over there and realize that it was Alan Trammell. Uh, but for me, he was a constant. If I could get a ground ball to short, I knew I had an out. And there's not a better feeling for a pitcher to know that your shortstop can do that. Gibby was intense. He came over to the Tigers after being an All-American at Michigan State as a offensive end uh, in football. Uh, he had a football mentality when he came over and it was very frustrating his early years because in football, if he made a mistake, he could go out and hurt somebody. Couldn't do that in baseball. Uh, so he hurt a lot of helmets and a lot of bats. He showed everybody that there was no one that wanted to win more than him. You know, when he started turning it up and started launching balls into the upper deck and over the roof in Tiger Stadium, you realized that he was some special talent. My first day I met Lance Parrish was the first day I signed my pro contract. And as I was walking in to the office to meet my manager at the hotel, I looked up on this balcony and there's this guy in a white muscle shirt with a huge afro, all muscled up, walking. And I thought to myself, man, got to be a rock band here tonight. I wonder who that is. He must be the drummer. <laughs> well, I got on the team bus and that was my catcher. His name was Lance Parrish. And that's where it all started with him and I, but uh, I loved him. I mean, he was, he was the guy and to this day, he's one of my best friends. That's the group of guys that I learned the game of baseball with. That's the group of guys that I came into pro ball with. And that's the group of guys that won a world championship, the last one the Tigers have had. Everybody played a unique role and contributed, and we'll share that bond forever. So now Chapel is, is basically in the twilight of his career, and he's spent his entire career with one team, which is pretty much an unheard of in today's sports. Uh, Gus, 
John C. Riley is Chapel's main buddy, and he knows everything about the guy, as all good catchers do. Uh, and honestly, this is probably why ex-catchers make the best managers. They often call the game and act like the quarterback on the field, if, if you're a football fan. And every pitch they call must serve a purpose. It's Even if it's get a pitch to work three pitches down the line, everything is setting up the hitter. So every pitch has to has to mean something. Chapel finds himself uh, finds out he's going to actually start the last game of the season against the New York Yankees at Yankee Stadium. And the, the Tigers are a losing club this season with nothing to play for. And Gus is really against Billy starting because he's got a bum shoulder that's flaring up. But Billy wants to pitch, and and this means something for the division race because the Boston Red Sox are fighting for the division title with the Yankees. So, you know, this happens a lot of times with guys. Even though your team might be out of it, you're trying to spoil it for others. And Billy jokes that he's got the ugliest wife in the league, referring to Gus. <laughs> and Gus is playing a Game Boy on the plane, which is, that's fun to watch. So it's kind of cool. You kind of get to see the life of a superstar major league ball player. They stay at the best hotels. You know, the bellhops take care of his every need and want. In this case, Billy wants to see a woman named Jane and has dinner and wine ready in his room. We really don't know who Jane is at this point. There, there's a great scene as a bummed out Billy who figures out that Jane's probably not coming. So he decides to take the canister of ice that is reserved for the chilled, you know, wine and he dunks his throwing arm into the the bucket of ice. And as Mike Kruko, the excellent uh, broadcaster for the San Francisco Giants, might say, he's definitely an old pitcher. And uh, as, we, as we figured out, Jane never shows up that night. So Brian Cox plays the owner of the Tigers, and he visits Billy in his hotel room in the morning. And Cox has been acting in TV and film since the mid-1960s. And one of his best-known roles at this point was playing the original Hannibal Lecter in the film Manhunter from 1986, which came out before Silence of the Lambs. All right, back to the movie. So uh, Cox um, informs that Billy that he sold the team and that the new owner wants to trade Billy to the Giants. And so Billy has been on the Tigers for 19 years, is now 40 years old. If this were a real baseball situation, since Billy has been in the league over 10 years and on the same team for the past five years, he could have technically just blocked the trade. But that would kind of eliminate the part of the drama here. So uh, so Cox basically tries to talk Billy into retiring because he's got nothing left to prove. And, and kind of ironically, in real life, Jackie Robinson was going to be traded from the Dodgers to the Giants at the end of his career. And instead of, of trying to play for the Giants, he retired. So there you go. Something against the Giants. I think Warren Spahn went to the Giants back in the day, but I'm probably, <laughs> except for my uncle, my dad, nobody knows who these people are. That's okay. You better know who Jackie Robinson is. Jeez. All right. So Jane, we, we now find that it's Kelly Preston, uh, calls Billy uh, during his meeting with the owner, and, and she takes a walk to Central Park instead of waiting in the hotel lobby. And as Ebert says, she tells Billy she's going to London for a job. And we find out originally they met five years earlier. So now we cut to the original Yankee Stadium and the voice of the legendary announcer, Vin Scully. And, and the baseball scenes here are really good. But really what puts this baseball action over the top is the commentary from Vin Scully. And he is an absolute artist as an announcer. He, he could paint a picture with his words like no other. There was really nobody else like Vin Scully, and there never will be. And if you never had the pleasure of listening to a live game with, with Vin broadcasting, this movie is a perfect snapshot to introduce yourself to really a master at work. 5-5 five, five in a delirious 10th inning. Can you believe this ball game at Shea? Oh, brother. 3-2 to Mookie Wilson. 
Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. If one picture is worth a thousand words, you have seen about a million words. But more than that, you have seen an absolutely bizarre finish to game six of the 1986 World Series. The Mets are not only alive, they are well. And the color commentator is Steve Lyons, who was an ex-ball player, played for the Chicago White Sox and the Boston Red Sox. He's probably best known during his playing days for diving headlong into first base and then forgetting where he was, even though he's in front of a bunch of fans, and decided to drop his pants in the middle of the game in front of the crowd trying to dust off his pants. If you don't believe me, go check out YouTube if you haven't seen this gem. There's the bunt. That could be trouble as Petrie... No, Stevie dives in and beats it. Good effort by Steve Lyons. That'll be a base hit right there. Good job. I'll tell you one thing, not a bad defensive play either by the Tigers. Did you see that? <laughs> He's going to get the dirt out, and all of a sudden he unbuckled his pants, and they fell down. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. The face is about the same color as the bill of that cap right now. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> geez, I don't think that's really the proper place to do that. But he forgot where he was. Yeah. He had a vapor lock. Yeah. He had a brain cramp. Oh my! Good job, though, by Lions. I'll tell you, push that ball past the pitcher, make the first baseman field it. That was Cecil right there. Close play, but he beats it. There's also a cool scene where a young player for the Yankees is walking around in, in, in the tunnels below the stadium where the locker rooms lead, and he stops Mr. Chapel to introduce himself as his father was once a teammate with Billy. And, and that's when you know you're getting old, when, when, you, start, when uh, you start playing against the children of the guys you once played with. And I think the coolest example of this was in 1990 when Ken Griffey Jr. played with his father, Ken Griffey Sr., on the Seattle Mariners, and they both played outfield in this, and uh, at the same time during a game, and then they had back-to-back -back singles. And then later that season, uh, both the Griffies hit back-to-back -back home runs in a game, which is awesome. Well, he's helping an inch back up there now. Well hit the center field. Devon White going back. Gone! A two-run home run. And he can still hit anybody's fastball. <laughs> An instantaneous two to nothing Seattle lead. And he hits one well to left center field. Dante Bichette. It's me. Back to back home runs. <laughs> what else can these guys do? And that's what I've always loved about sports. If this sort of thing was in the movies, people would say it was hokey or it would never happen. Well, this really did happen, and you hear about it all the time. Okay, so J.K. Simmons plays the manager of the Tigers, and, and Simmons visits Billy in the bullpen as he's warming up and informs Billy that he wants to start another catcher instead of Gus due to the lack of production from Gus at the plate. And so Billy calmly states that he won't pitch without Gus catching him. And, and actually... 
Having a designated catcher for certain pitchers is fairly common as the connection between a starting pitcher and a catcher must be in sync. A fun note about this, J.K. Simmons is in real life an avid Detroit Tigers fan, and he actually threw out the ceremonial first pitch in in the opening game of the Tigers season in 2015. So, I'm a baseball geek when it comes to stats. I have no shame of saying that. So, if you're not a baseball fan, you can just zone out, but I love this shit. So, coming into his final start, Billy has a win-loss record of 8-11 with a 3.55 ERA and 30 starts. He has two complete games and one shutout. At this point, he's thrown 211 innings, walked 98, and struck out 111. So, at this point, he's definitely a finesse pitcher. He's probably just pitching to contact. So, however, in this game, he tells Gus that he's going to be throwing a little harder than usual. So, you kind of get the feeling that this might be his last start as a ball player. And he's kind of going about this start a little bit more serious and in focus than, I think, probably previous starts earlier in the year. You know, I can only imagine the the feeling of being a starting pitcher on the mound of a big league stadium, especially at the legendary Yankee Stadium. And uh, the thing that sells this movie, besides having Vince Scully do the play-by-play, is that Costner really looks like a veteran pitcher. His throwing motion is perfect, along with his mannerisms. One thing that the movie does that no other sports movie really touched upon is how ballplayers can tune out the noise of the crowd. In this case, Billy does a thing called Clear the Mechanism, in which he mentally hyper-focuses on the target of the catcher and hears nothing else. I have no idea if ballplayers really do this, but looking at the intense looks on many of their eyes while playing, you would have to assume this comes you know, some sort of a real place. Okay, in between uh, scenes of the game, we find out that Jane's flight is delayed and everywhere she goes, the ball game's on, much to her chagrin. And however, she decides uh, to watch the game at the bar while some obnoxious guy rants his bullshit commentary throughout every pitch. And I never know how the wives, girlfriends, parents of players deal with hearing how much their guy sucks or is washed up without wanting to tell the blowhard where he can go. And and the, that's the beauty of, I guess, sports fans' rights. But there's nothing worse about hearing a guy, usually guys, commentate, acting like they know what the fuck they're talking about when really they're just talking out of their ass. And so you just ignore those idiots. All right, there's a real fun scene where Billy faces Sam Tuttle, and he's the number three hitter for the Yankees. And, and the two guys don't like each other. But Billy knows he doesn't swing on the first pitch, so he throws a fastball in the inside corner to kind of steal a strike. He then paints the outside corner with another fastball. Tuttle complains about both strike calls, which I'm sure always thrills umpires. And Billy just misses... Uh, on the outside corner with another fastball in the next pitch, and Tuttle kind of has a shit-eating grin when that pitch is called a ball, so he decides to crowd the plate. 
So Billy decides to knock him off the plate with an inside fastball above his head. This was the good old days, kind of, when he could pitch inside. And Billy throws a great curveball with the next pitch and strikes him out looking. So much to Ebert's review, I believe why this movie never really took off was the interchanging between the live game and the flashbacks. In between the game was the love story tale between Billy and Jane. It, it was like the movie that tried too hard to have it both ways for a wide range audience, but never really quite found its audience. And, and the hardcore baseball fan was likely put off by the breaking up of the game with an entirely different plot. And so I get that. Uh, the first flashback is Billy meeting uh, Jane for the first time on the interstate after a car breaks down. So then we cut back to the game, and Billy is facing his old friend, Davis Birch, who used to play with Billy on the Tigers. And Davis was traded as the team couldn't afford to resign him. And it must always be strange for guys to face their buddies in competition. All right, then we get another flashback. But this is a funny scene where uh, Jane meets Billy uh, next time he's in New York, and, and she almost doesn't show up, but but she does. And Billy has to deal with autograph seekers as he has like kind of a heartfelt, not heated, but you know, serious conversation with Jane. And I can't imagine not being able to be a normal person out in public where, where people always want something from you. And uh, they, they cut back, and, and they decide that they, they will see each other when he's in New York, and they agree that they will live their, li- their own lives when they're apart. Of course, this is never as easy as it sounds. We then cut back to the game. Chapel is totally in his zone. He's dominating. He's perfect through three innings, which, if you didn't know, it means no hits, no walks, and no errors. Uh, there's another funny scene flashback as Gus and Billy are chatting in the dugout about their teammate, who was up at the plate at the time and had a ball bounce off his head and over the fence when they were playing at Fenway Park when when he was fielding. And uh, this, of course, was likely a nod to Jose Canseco, who had the same thing happen to him when he was traded from the Oakland A's to the Texas Rangers in the early 90s. High fly ball, right field deep. Canseco back to the track. Look it up. It is off his head, it looked like. And over the top. laughing out there so it uh, must hit something funny it either hit his head or his shoulder let's take a look at it Martinez fourth home run of the year and Canseco goes back to the wall he looks like he's you know he's checking the wall he's checking the ball checking the wall and the ball reaches up it's him right in the head he goes over the top <laughs> It hit Canseco in the head and bounced over the wall for a homer. Look at this. Boink. And it's out of here. No wonder David Hulse was laughing when he went over there. Jose, you've hit a lot of home runs. You did a lot of great things, but that shot will live forever. That is, you will be remembered for that forever. There's a great scene in the locker room after the game where Billy shows that he's a, really a team leader as he tells the outfielder who had the ball go over the fence off his head that he needs to keep his head up and don't make a joke of it to the reporters. And uh, and one of the, the locker room guys says, that's old school, man. The same night, Billy discovers that Jane has a daughter named Heather, and this is uh, played by Jenna Malone, and, and she's run away to her father's place in Boston after a fight with her mom. He finds Heather on the team, uh, finds Heather staying at a, at a place, and then uh, the team bus picks her up, and the guys on the bus are giving him shit, guessing how old she is, and we find out that Jane had Heather when, uh, when Jane was 16. 
So that same night, Billy decides he wants to have an actual relationship with Jane and wants to be part of not only her life, but also her daughter's. However, an accident with his pitching hand almost ruins his career and leads to the straining of his relationship with Jane as he kind of is depressed about something where he's, he's played baseball his whole life and, and that that's possibly being taken away from him and he does not know how to handle it. And she's supportive and he's not really a nice person to be around at the time. So we cut back to the game. We find out that Gus is at bat. He's having an awful season at the plate, but as they say, any given day, something good could happen, and Gus bloops a double to right field. He eventually scores on a single on a close play at the plate, and it's kind of nice that there's no replay to deal with here, and because uh, it probably would have been replayed in real life, and this would be the only run in the game for the Tigers. So now we go to the top of the seventh, and Billy's shoulder starts to bother him, and I guess there's a time in every athlete's career where you, you have to have... Uh, your guts be greater than the ability you have in the moment. And adrenaline is an amazing thing, not just in sports, but just in life. When you, when you need to to get something done, you can magically do it and not even realize it. Uh, Sam Tuttle ends up doing an interesting thing and often a huge faux pas in baseball etiquette. He tries to bunt for a hit to break up the perfect game. However, since the score is one nothing, it's really not that big of a deal. Uh, this was probably done though, since Tuttle and Billy don't like each other. But honestly, if it's a one-run game and you do, and you need base runners, baseball etiquette kind of goes out the window. If it was ten to nothing, yeah, it's it's kind of bush league. All right, it's always funny uh, about perfect games or no hitters and how nobody will talk to the pitcher on when you're in the bench. Uh, that's what I always loved about San Francisco Giants pitcher Tim Lincecum because during both of his no-hitters, he acted like he always did. He was not affected by the moment. He would almost look for guys to talk to. So the thing is, there have been tw only 23 perfect games in history. And considering that Major League Baseball has been around for over 150 years, a perfect game is super, super rare. So, of course, it was my sister and not me who got to see Matt Cain's perfect game for the San Francisco Giants in 2011. Yeah, don't get me started on that. So it's funny how Billy doesn't even realize he has a perfect game going until the top of the eighth when he looks at the scoreboard. And at this point, he confesses to Gus that he's just running on fumes. And, and Gus is the perfect person for him and, and talks him up. Uh, Billy throws three straight balls to the first uh, hitter, who's his old pal Davis. And he sort of gets a wake-up call when he sees a guy warming up in the bullpen. And so, as Mike Kruko always talks about, uh, how just one pitch can kind of get you back in the rhythm, even if you couldn't find the plate before, the same thing happens to Billy. And as Costner put it, he was throwing a perfect game while re reflecting on his imperfect life. And so just like the Matt Kane perfect game, there was an amazing catch by an outfielder that saves a perfect game. In this case, it was the guy who had the ball jump, you know, bounce off his head in the movie. Uh, but in real life, Gregor Blanco saved Matt Kane with an amazing diving catch in center field. And this is hit out into the alleyway. A long run for Blanco. And Blanco's going to dive! And he makes the catch! Here in the seventh inning. This is unbelievable. Into the gap, and he was in that direction in the first place. And then at the last moment, it looks like no, but he makes the desperation dive, and then he has to hold on to it as he hits the deck. Look at the concentration there, and look at that play. And Matt Kane was watching as well. Yeah, and maybe saying the same thing. Are you kidding me? 
<laughs> and he tips his cap. And what's also crazy is that there's a play uh, with the first batter in the top of the ninth where a left-handed hitter, or sorry, it's a bottom of the ninth, where the left-handed hitter hits a ball down the third baseline and the third baseman makes a great play to throw him out. Now, in real life, uh, Matt Cain, Joaquin Arias, playing third base, did the same thing for the final out in Matt Cain's perfect game. Uh, so it goes to show that live sports are sometimes the greatest theater there is. There's a fun fact. So Vin, Vin Scully, actually broadcasted Don Larson's perfect game in the 1956 World Series. And and this is the only no-hitter or perfect game in World Series history. So look, I'm not going to tell you the outcome. The movie stands on its own. If you're a fan of baseball, the gameplay is stellar. If, If you're a fan of romance movies, you may be interested in that part of the plot. In any case, baseball is the best sport around. So celebrate another perfect season (laughs) by watching your favorite baseball movie, whatever that may be. It might be Major League. It might be Bull Durham. It could be The Natural. There are so many great baseball movies that eventually we will be talking about. So I will say that there is nothing like watching a close baseball game. No other sport is like it. Every pitch means something, and the tension is like no other. And there's a reason why there's so many great baseball movies compared to other sports. Baseball has a poetic charm that can't be matched. And if you think it's boring, it's your loss. But it's been a, it's the oldest American sport, and it's got the history, and it's just it's perfect. It's a perfect sport. And as Vince Scully says, the cathedral of Yankee Stadium belongs to a chapel. And like only he could say. The cool thing about this movie is there were real umpires and real players. Uh, Ricky Lede and Juan Nieves were probably the best-known players that were on the Yankees. Uh, and, and most of the Yankee players were from their minor league system. It's one of the few sports movies that really centers on one game and only one game. And really, the game really does look like a, a real, actual live game. Even the broadcast shots are, are terrific. And, and baseball experts were hired for the realism, and it totally worked. And, and they would move the crowd all around the stadium for a variety of shots since they can't fill up Yankee Stadium. And, and this movie was actually shot in November, and the weather was perfect for them. The other thing is Costner pretty much threw every pitch in that movie, and he could throw actual curveballs, and he could throw in his mid-80s, and he was 43 years old, and, and that's pretty awesome. Man. You know, He threw as many pitchers as an actual pitcher. If anything, he actually threw more pitches because he would throw like 1,000 pitches in one day, and he's 43 years old, so I can only imagine how his arm felt. All right, there were some deleted scenes that were interesting, so if you have the DVD, you can check these out. Uh, he, there's a scene where he's warming up at the bullpen, so this is kind of like an alternate extended scene of the actual movie, and you actually find out that the manager's wife, J.K. Simmons, has cancer. They pretty much cut out this whole plot, uh, plot point. Uh, there's another deleted scene where Davis and Billy meet in center field, and Davis asks him if uh, him and Gus want to play golf the next day. It's actually a good scene, but it, it needed to be cut from the film because the first time you see Davis is when he comes to the plate. That's the actual introduction of the backstory of the two, and this would have been diluted if we kept the scene in. There's another scene where Billy throws Jane a ball in between innings. You actually do see this in the movie. However, there's an extended scene of when Jane sits with the players' wives on their first date, and the guys of the dugout try to figure out which one she is. They, they, they figure it out by saying, yeah, she doesn't look like a wife. <laughs> and one says she looks like a librarian because she's wearing glasses. There's another uh, deleted scene where Billy calls Jane from his hotel room, but then Gus shows up with three women (laughs) to his room to party. Billy kind of gets pissed and kicks him out, and then Jane gets pissed because she hears the women in the background. Uh, Later, the manager stops by um, uh, to talk, and and Jane hangs up on him. This is where we find out that the wife's manager has cancer, and he kind of breaks down in front of Billy. 
And again, the entire cancer storyline was cut out. There's another scene where Billy's eating alone at a restaurant, and he's heckled by a, a pretty much an asshole who, who asks if he sawed any wood lately, referring to his injury. And the server says she'll kick him out of the restaurant in three seconds if he doesn't shut his mouth. The female server says that Billy looks good, and then, of course, he ends up taking her home and sleeping with her. All right, there's all sorts of fun facts, um, but I'm going to get into something because I'm a huge baseball geek, but first we'll get into the fun facts. The film was actually based on a 1991 novel of the same name by Michael Shera, and Shera actually died of a heart attack in 1988, and his son Jeffrey made sure, made sure that the book was published after his death. Annette Benning was originally set to play the female lead instead of Kelly Preston. It was reported that Kevin Costner was angry with Universal Pictures because they cut out his full frontal shower scene. Costner told Newsweek that the studio lacked real courage by insisting that the film have a more kid-friendly rating. But a studio executive told New York Magazine that the test audience in Arizona gave a thumbs down to Costner's manhood. The audience giggled at Kevin's penis, saying in focus groups, do we really need to see Kevin Costner's penis? (laughs) Dave Island, who was actually a a real-life relief pitcher and starting pitcher, he actually played a relief pitcher in the bullpen and the celebration scene. He was uh, Kevin Costner's pitching double in some long shots. Uh, He later went on to serve as pitching coach for the Kansas City Royals and New York so half of the spectators in the stands were actually virtual cardboard people all right so now i'm going to do something real fun i'm going to go through all 23 perfect games that were pitched in major league baseball and uh, you know if this doesn't interest you i'm sorry but you know this is this is fun and uh, if you're not a baseball fan you can skip through it but for me this this will be a lot of fun and if you are a baseball fan this might interest you so before the modern era of baseball, that's kind of like the pre-1900s, um, there were two perfect games. One was by a guy named Lee Richman, who pitched for the Worcester Worcesters. Yeah, and they won one nothing over the Cleveland Blues. And so Richman was pitching in his first full season in the big leagues after appearing in one game in 1879. That's right. So he was apparently considered a good hitter as he batted second in the lineup, and his perfect game featured an unusual 9-3 putout, which means the right fielder got the ball and threw it to first after a base hit. Three outs were recorded on, quote, foul bounds, where the ball is caught after bouncing once in foul territory. The foul bound rule was eliminated three years later. So again, baseball has changed over time, especially way back when. So in the seventh inning, the game was delayed for seven minutes due to rain. Uh, Richmond dried the ball off with sawdust uh, before he returned to the mound because it wasn't like they had a ton of foul ball, you know, balls go out and play. They pretty much used one ball the whole game. A monument marks the site of the Worcester Agricultural Fairgrounds where the game took place. Uh, is now part of Becker College. The feat was recognized as unusual. A uh, newspaper report described it as the most wonderful game on record. The next per- perfect game was uh, the same year, uh, only like about a month, uh, no, it was only five days later, by John Montgomery Ward. <laughs> Montgomery Ward. He played for the Providence Grays and beat the Buffalo Bisons 5 to nothing. Uh, so they used to call him Monty Ward. He threw his first perfect game, or his only perfect game, at Grace Park in Providence. Uh, but Buffalo, by virtue of a coin toss... Um, which was under, which was custom under the rules at the time, they were considered the home team and batting at the bottom of each inning. So it, it wasn't like they figured out who the home team was unless they flipped a coin, which that's fascinating. So Ward at the time 
Uh, he was only 20 years old, and he was the youngest pitcher ever to throw a perfect game. He batted six in the lineup. Uh, beginning in 1881, after a year after his perfect game, he actually spent more time as a position player than a pitcher. And then in 1885, following an arm injury, he became a full-time infielder. The five days between Ward's perfect game and Richmond's perfect game is the shortest amount of time between Major League perfect games. All right, so let's go to the modern era, and even though it's not that modern, but the next perfect game was in 1904 by a very famous pitcher named Cy Young. He was pitching for the Boston Americans over the Philadelphia Athletics. He beat them 3-0. So Young's perfect game was part of a hitless streak of 24 or 25 and a third straight innings, depending on whether partial innings at either end of the streak are included. Uh, In either calculation, the streak remains a record, and it's part of a streak of 45 straight innings in which Cy Young did not give up a run, which was then a record. Next perfect game was in 1908, uh, pitched by Addie Joss, who played for the Cleveland Naps over the Chicago White Sox, and he beat them 1-0. Of the 20 perfect games for which pitch counts were available, Addie Joss's was the most efficient. He only threw 74 pitches, which is crazy. That's fewer than three per batter. Joss's was the most pressure packed of any regular season perfect game. With just four games left on their schedule, the Cleveland Naps were involved in a three-way pennant race with the Tigers and the White Sox that day's opponent. Joss's counterpart, Ed Walsh, actually struck out 15 and just gave up four scattered singles. The lone, unearned run scored as a result of a botched pickoff play and a wild pitch. The Naps ended the day tied with the Tigers for first with the White Sox two games back. The Tigers won the league by a half game over the Naps. Joss threw a second no-hitter against the White Sox in 1910, making him and Tim Lincecum of the Giants the only major league pitchers to ever throw two no-hitters against the same team. So again, if you're not a baseball fan and you're listening to this, let me clarify. A perfect game is where you go 27 batters straight and you get all out. There can't be anyone that gets on base, whether it be an error, a hit, or a walk. They just 27 up, 27 down. Whereas a no-hitter, you could actually give up runs in a no-hitter um, because you could give up runs by an error or a wild pitch, you know, on a, on a third strike or something like that. So that's why a perfect game is, is super, super rare. All right, Charlie Robertson in 1922 threw uh, a, a perfect game again for the Chicago White Sox versus the Detroit Tigers. He beat them 2-0. Robertson's perfect game was only his fifth appearance and fourth start in the big leagues, and he finished his career with a 49-80 and record, the fewest wins of any perfect game until Bra- Dallas Braden, who we'll get to later. Robertson's winning percentage of 380 remains the lowest of anyone who ever threw a perfect game. The Tigers, led by player manager Ty Cobb, you might know that name, accused Robertson of illegally doctoring the ball with either oil or grease. In terms of the opposing team's ability to get on base, this is statistically the most unlikely of a perfect game. The 1922 Tigers had an on-base percentage of 373, which is excellent. All right, and then it was many, many years, over 30 years until the next perfect game, and this might be one of the most legendary perfect games. It came in 1956 from Don Larson. Uh, he pitched for the New York Yankees against the Brooklyn Dodgers. He beat him 2 nothing. And so Larson didn't know he was going to pitch in Game 5 of the 1956 World Series until a few hours before game time. This was his second start in the series, and he had lasted less than two innings in Game 2. In his perfect game, Larson employed the style... Uh, he adopted in midseason, working without a windup. Just one Dodger batter, Pee Wee Reese, in the first inning worked a three-ball count, which is crazy. The Dodgers had the highest season winning percentage of any team to ever lose a perfect game. 
The image of catcher Yogi Berra leaping into Larson's arm after the final strike is one of the most famous in baseball history. The 34 years between Robertson's feet and Larson's is the longest gap between perfect games. Next one was Jim Bunning in 1964, and he played for the Philadelphia Phillies and beat the New York Mets 6 0. Bunning's perfect game, pitched on Father's Day, was the first in the National League since uh, Ward's, Montgomery Ward's perfect game 84 years prior. Defying the baseball superstition that one should not talk to a no-hitter in progress, Bunning actually spoke to his teammates about the perfect game as it developed to loosen them up and relieve the pressure. Not only is Bunning after a no-hitter, he's after a perfect ball game. All right, next, Sandy Koufax in 1965 for the Los Angeles Dodgers beat the Chicago Cubs 1-0. Sandy Koufax's perfect game was the last of his four no-hitters pitched in four consecutive seasons. If you, <laughs> He was unbelievably dominating back in his day. Koufax's perfect game was the first one pitched at night, and it was nearly a double no-hitter as Cubs pitcher Bob Henley gave up only one hit, which was a bloop double to left fielder Lou Johnson in the seventh inning that did not figure in the scoring. The Dodgers scored their only run in the fifth inning, where Lou Johnson reached on a walk, advanced uh, to, to second on a sacrifice bunt, stole third, and scored when Cubs catcher Chris Krug overthrew third base on the play. The game also set the records for, by, for the fewest hits by both teams, uh, one, and the fewest base runners by both teams, two. Both, actually, were by Lou Johnson. Koufax's 14 strikeouts are tied with Matt Keane for the most ever thrown by a perfect game pitcher. Three times in his sensational career has Sandy Koufax walked out to the mound to pitch a fateful ninth where he turned in a no-hitter. But tonight, September the 9th, 1965, he made the toughest walk of his career, I'm sure, because through eight innings he has pitched a perfect game he has struck out 11, he has retired 24 consecutive batters, and the first man he will look at is catcher Chris Cruz, big right-hand hitter, fly to center, grounded to short. Dick Trususki is now at second base, and Koufax ready and delivers, curve ball for a strike. Oh, and one to count to Chris Cruz. Out on deck to pinch hit is one of the men we mentioned earlier as a possible Joey Amalfitano. Here's the strike one pitch to Krug. Fastball swung on and missed. Strike two. And you can almost taste the pressure now. Koufax lifted his cap, ran his fingers through his black hair, then pulled the cap back down, fussing at the bill. Krug must feel it too as he backs out, heaves a sigh, took off his helmet, put it back on and steps back up to the plate. Trususki is over to his right to fill up the middle. 
Kennedy is deep to guard the line. The strike two pitch on the way. Fastball outside, ball one. Krug started to go after it and held up, and Torborg held the ball high in the air, trying to convince Vargo, but Eddie said, no, sir. One and two, the count to Chris Krug. It is 9.41 p.m. on September the 9th. The one-two pitch on the way. Curveball, tap foul off to the left of the plate. The Dodgers defensively. In this spine-tingling moment, Sandy Koufax and Jeff Torboy. The boys who will try and stop anything hit their way. Wes Parker, Dick Trasuski, Maury Wills, and John Kennedy. The outfield of Lou Johnson, Willie Davis, and Ron Fairley. And there's a 29,000 people in the ballpark and a million butterflies. 29,139 paid. Koufax into his windup and the one-two pitch. Fastball foul back out of play. In the Dodger dugout, Al Ferrara gets up and walks down near the runway. And it begins to get tough to be a teammate and sit in the dugout and have to watch. Sandy, back of the rubber, now toes it. All the boys in the bullpen straining to get a better look as they look through the wire fence in left field. One and two, the count to Chris Krug. Koufax, feet together, now to his wind-up in the one-two pitch. Fastball outside, ball two. A lot of people in the ballpark now are starting to see the pitches with their heart. The pitch was outside. Torborg tried to pull it over the plate, but Vargo, an experienced umpire, wouldn't go for it. Two and two, the count to Chris Krug. Sandy reading signs into his windup. Two-two pitch. Fastball got him swinging. Sandy Koufax has struck out 12. He is two outs away from a perfect game. Here is Joe Amalfitano to pinch it for Don Kessinger. Amalfitano is from Southern California, from San Pedro. He was an original bonus boy with the Giants. Joey's been around, and as we mentioned earlier, he has helped to beat the Dodgers twice, and on deck is Harvey Keene. Kennedy is tight to the bag at third. The fastball, a strike. <laughs> oh, and one with one out in the ninth inning. One to nothing, Dodgers. Sandy reading into his windup and the strike one pitch. Curveball, tap foul. Oh, and two. And Amalfitano walks away and shakes himself a little bit and swings the bat. And Koufax with a new ball takes a hitch at his belt and walks behind the mound. I would think that the mound at Dodger Stadium right now is the loneliest place in the world. Looks in to get his sign. 0-2 to Amalfitano. The strike two pitch to Joe. Fastball swung on and missed strike three. He is one out away from the promised land. And Harvey Keene is coming up. So Harvey Keene is batting for Bob Henley. 
The time on the scoreboard is 9.44. The date, September the 9th, 1965. And Koufax working on veteran Harvey Keene. Sandy into his windup, and the pitch, a fastball for a strike. He has struck out, by the way, five consecutive batters. And that's gone unnoticed. Sandy ready in the strike one pitch. Very high, and he lost his hat. He really forced that one. That's only the second time tonight where I have had the feeling that Sandy threw instead of pitched, trying to get that little extra. And that time he tried so hard, his hat fell off. He took an extremely long stride to the plate, and Torborg had to go up to get it. One and one to Harvey Keene. Now he's ready. Fastball high, ball two. You can't blame a man for pushing just a little bit now. Sandy backs off, mops his forehead, runs his left index finger along his forehead, dries it off on his left pants leg. All the while, Keene just waiting. Now Sandy looks in. Into his windup and the 2-1 pitch to Keene. Swung on and missed, strike two. It is 9.46 p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. On the scoreboard in right field, it is 9.46 p.m. in the city of the Angels, Los Angeles, California. And a crowd of 29,139. Just sitting in to see the only pitcher in baseball history to hurl four no-hit, no-run games. He has done it four straight years, and now he capped it on his fourth no-hitter. He made it a perfect game. And Sandy Koufax, whose name will always remind you of strikeouts, did it with a flourish. He struck out the last six consecutive batters. So when he wrote his name in capital letters in the record books, that K stands out even more than the O-U-F-A-X. All right, Catfish Hunter in 1968. What a great name. His real name was Jim. Pitched for the Oakland A's, and he beat the Minnesota Twins 4 to nothing. Hunter, a talented batter, was also the hitting star of his perfect game. He went 3-for-4 with a double and 3 RBI, including a bunt single that drove home the first run and thus winning uh, the, and thus the winning run in the seventh inning, easily the best offensive performance ever by a perfect game pitcher. And at 22, Hunter was the youngest pitcher to throw a perfect game in the modern era. And this was the first no-hitter in the Oakland Athletics' tenure which um, the A's were only 25 games old that year. That was their debut season in Oakland. Two down, top of the ninth inning, nobody on. Four to nothing in favor of the A's. Jim Hunter, here he comes again with the free tool delivery. Fastball, leading there. Great play, the boy is six to no here. 
Jim Catfish Hunter did not allow one man to get the first base tonight against the Minnesota Twins. He picks a perfect ball game and goes into the record book tonight of the immortals who have stood out on that diamond and have been able to move the opposition down. Right now, his teammates have hoisted into their shoulders and they're carrying him to the dugout. And you can well imagine how this young man feels. This is a no-hitter, and Monty Moore, I can tell you one thing, that I have gotten a lot of thrills out of broadcasting no-hitters. Tonight is the 14th Major League no-hitter I have had the privilege of broadcasting, and I'll tell you definitely that the one who was pitched here tonight has given me my greatest thrill. Well, it's the greatest thrill I've ever had in sports of any kind, Al, and we just can't wait to get down in that dressing room and start talking with Catfish Hunter and you people listening on the radio. Stay tuned now. We'll be interviewing Catfish as soon as we can. The final score of the game, the A's four and the Twins nothing. All right, it'd be a long time, so from 1968 to 1981 before the next perfect game, and this one was by Len Barker, who played for the Cleveland Indians, and he beat the Toronto Blue Jays 3 to nothing. Barker's perfect game was the first one in which designated hitters were used. He did not reach a three-ball count the entire game. Toronto shortstop Alfredo Griffin, who played for the losing team in, in this game, went on to play for the losers in the perfect games of also two other pitchers that we will get to. Uh, also, on the losing end of this game was Danny Ainge, who played 14 seasons in the NBA with the Boston Celtics. Uh, all 11 of Barker's strikeouts were swinging. Also, barely anyone saw this in person as only 7,200 fans showed up to Cleveland Stadium that night. So, any given day. Two strikes, one ball, ninth inning. Len Barker on the verge of really base. Uh, one of the great games in baseball history. This place is bedlam, Herb. It is absolutely pandemonium here at the stadium. Len Barker getting a sign from Ron Hesse. Ernie Witt stands in. Wind up. Here it comes. Fly ball, center field. Manning coming on. He's there. He catches it. Len Barker has pitched the no-hitter. A perfect game for Len Barker. Next, Mike Witt in 1984 threw a perfect game for the California Angels versus the Texas Rangers, one to nothing. Witt's perfect game came on the last day of the 1984 season. Reggie Jackson, who played for the Angels at the time, drove in the only run of the game on a seventh-inning fielder's choice ground ball. And he was also on the winning team when Catfish Hunter threw his perfect game. On April 11, 1990, uh, Mike Witt, pitching out of the bullpen, actually combined with starting pitcher Mark Langston to throw a no-hitter for the California Angels. And much like Barker's game, very few fans saw this game as only 8,300 fans showed up to Arlington Stadium because they were out of the pennant race. Two balls a strike. Bouncing ball to second. He's got to do it. A perfect game for Mike Witt. Mike Witt pitches a perfect game. California and the Angels mob him. So that is the first no hitter ever pitched in Arlington Stadium. Next, in 1988, came Tom Browning. Uh, he was playing for the Cincinnati Reds, and they beat the Dodgers one to nothing. So Browning's perfect game for the Reds uh, against the Dodgers. 
uh, came against the team that eventually won the that year's World Series, which was the famous Kirk Gibson home run year. A two-hour, 27-minute rain delay caused the game to start approximately at 10 p.m. their time. And right fielder Paul O'Neill, who played for the winning team in this game, also played for the winning side of two perfect games coming up for the New York Yankees. The following July 4th, Browning came within an inning of becoming the first pitcher to throw two perfect games as he retired the first 24 batters against the Phillies before surrendering a leadoff double in the ninth. He is ready for the 2-2 two, two to Woodson, and here it comes. And it is swung out and and Tom Browning has pitched a perfect game. 27 outs in a row, and he is being mobbed by his teammates just to the third base side of the mound. A perfect game thrown by Tom Browning on this Friday night. Next came Dennis Martinez in 1991, where he was playing for the Montreal Expos against the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he beat them 2-0. Dennis Martinez was born in uh, Nicaragua, and he was the first major league pitcher born outside the United States to throw a perfect game. His opposing pitcher at the time for the Dodgers, Mike Morgan, was actually perfect through five full innings. Uh, the latest and opposing starter in a perfect game has remained perfect. Now, two days earlier, Expos pitcher Mark Gardner no-hit the Dodgers through nine innings, but lost the no-hitter in the 10th, meaning the Expos narrowly missed throwing a no-hitter and a perfect game in the same series. Uh, Dennis Martinez's catcher at the time, Ron Hassey, also caught Len Barker's perfect game. So I love all this intersecting data. This was the third perfect game pitch against the Dodgers, whether it be Brooklyn or Los Angeles, joining, uh, joining those of Larson and Browning. In the bottom of the ninth. 26 in a row have been retired by Dennis Martinez. One and two pitch. In the air. Center field. Grissom. El Presidente. El Perfecto. All right. Kenny Rogers, not the, not the famous singer, uh, but the pitcher for the Texas Rangers in 1994 threw a perfect game against Cal the California Angels uh, for nothing. Rogers actually benefited from center fielder Rusty Greer's fantastic diving catch of a line drive by Rex Hudler, leading off the ninth inning. And Rogers' performance against Angel came, came 10 seasons after Witt's perfect game against the Rangers. So Angels and Rangers are the only major league teams to record perfect games against each other. The home plate umpire was a minor league fill-in named Ed Bean, who was working his 29th major league game and 7th behind the plate. Bean, who was substituting for 17-year veteran Ken Kaiser, worked only 7 more major league baseball games following Rogers' performance. But that's a nice feather in his hat. DeSarcina has never had a hit off Rogers, hitless in 16 at-bats. Tonight, he is grounded out twice. The crowd on its feet here in Arlington. Two outs in the ninth. A fly to center field. Greer there. He's got it. A perfect game. Oh, baby. Kenny Rogers pitches the 11th perfect game in Major League history, and he is mobbed by his teammates here at the ballpark in Arlington. History made July 28, 1994. Kenny Rogers, a true gem, a perfecto. He throws 98 pitches, strikes out eight, retires all 27 California Angels that he faces. 
A perfect game for the Rangers left-hander Kenny Rogers as he wins for the 11th time in 1994. Oh, what a sight. What a thrill here in Texas tonight. All right, then David Wells in 1998, pitching for the New York Yankees, threw one against the Minnesota Twins and beat them 4 nothing. So Wells, who attended the same high school as Don Larson, Point Loma High School in San Diego, California, which is crazy. They both enjoyed the nightlife. Uh, Casey Stengel once said of uh, Larson, the only thing he fears is sleep. <laughs> Wells has claimed that he had been half drunk and suffering from a raging skull rattling hangover during his perfect game. Wells' perfect game comprised the core of uh, 38 consecutive retires batters uh, streak going, and that was an American League record and, uh, that he held until 2007. Popped up right field near the line. O'Neill appears to have room. He puts it away, and David Wells has pitched a perfect game. What a day to come to the ballpark. Almost 50,000 here, and from the third inning on, when David Wells struck out the side, I think, Kenny, that fans had a sense that something special was happening. And you saw David Cohn, as we'll get another look at the last out of the game. David Cohn wants David Wells to come back out for a curtain call. The fans are sticking around. That's the last out that O'Neill catches. Here he comes. David Wells back out of the dugout. There's a look at the last pitch, and he knows it's a done deal. It's headed in the direction of Paul O'Neill, and it's over. <laughs> the 15th regular season perfect game in Major League history, and the first ever at Yankee Stadium. What a day for it. What a wonderful crowd. Almost looks like the last out of the World Series. You know, when you think about it, Kenny, you go back a couple of starts and David Wells was mad at the world yeah. in Texas. A few starts later, they carry him off the field here at Yankee Stadium. Then next year, the same New York Yankees had David Cohn throw a perfect game in 1999 where they beat the Montreal Expos 6 to nothing. So Cohn's perfect game actually uh, occurred on Yogi Berra Day and Don Larson threw out the first ceremonial pitch to Berra, who had been, ca been the catcher for the 1956 World Series game that uh, Larson threw the perfect game. And as the game wore on, television cameras showed Larson. Uh, the only perfect game pitcher to attend another perfect game. And so no Expo even worked a three-ball count. Cone's perfect game, which only took 88 pitches, was actually interrupted by a 33-minute rain delay and is the only one to date in regular season interleague play. Following uh, teammate, well, uh, following Wells's perfect game the previous season, this is only uh, the time where two successive perfect games have been thrown by the same team. A perfect by David Cohn. 
All right, next came Randy Johnson in 2004, where he was pitching for the Arizona Diamondbacks against Atlanta Braves 2-0. I do remember watching this one. And all right, Johnson threw his perfect game at the age of 40, making him the most, uh, the oldest pitcher to ever do this. Uh, but prior to that, the former uh, oldest pitcher was Cy Young when he was 37 years old. Uh, Johnson was the tallest pitcher to throw a perfect game as he was six foot ten, surpassing Mike Witt by three inches. Of the teams that have had a perfect game thrown against them, the 2004 Braves have the second highest on base percentage and are tied for the second highest winning percentage. In contrast, the Diamondbacks have by far the worst winning percentage of any team to benefit from a perfect game. A perfect game with one out to go. Look at Randy Johnson. A perfect game. 13 strikeouts. He faced 27 men. He got them all out. And he gets mobbed by his teammates out by the mound. Next came Mark Burley in 2009. Uh, he was pitching for the Chicago White Sox against the Tampa Bay Rays 5-0. And I remember watching this at my desk when I had the MLB streaming app. And uh, really what I remembered most, and most people remember this, was Burley was assisted by a dramatic ninth-inning wall-climbing catch by center fielder Dwayne Wise to rob Gabe Kapler of a home run. Kapler is now the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. So Wise had actually just entered the game as a defensive replacement before Kapler's at bat. And this was the first Major League perfect game in which the pitcher and the catcher were battery mates for the first time. Ramon Castro had been acquired by the White Sox less than two months before. This was also the first perfect game to feature a grand slam, this by Josh Fields in the bottom of the second inning. Umpire Eric Cooper, who called the game, had also been behind the plate for Burley's previous no-hitter. On July 28th of that year, Burley followed up with another five five and two-thirds perfect inning to set the Major League record for consecutive batters retired at 45. This includes the final batter he faced in his appearance before the perfect game. Now, that record was broken by Yusmero Petit of the San Francisco Giants in 2014. That ball hit deep into left center field. Wise back, back. Makes the catch! What a play! Wise makes the catch! What a play by Wise! Mercy! A great catch by Dwayne Wise! It's unbelievable as Wise goes back into the wall knowing he has no room to spare. He goes up over the wall and then juggles it before corralling it. What a play by Wise! Under the circumstances, one of the greatest catches I have ever seen in 50 Alexei! Yes! 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 History! Oh, Ken Harrelson. 
Next came Dallas Braden in 2010, and, and it was the Oakland A's that he pitched for, beating the Tampa Bay Rays for nothing. Now, Dallas's uh, perfect game was pitched on Mother's Day and was the first complete game of his career. And what was cool was that his grandmother had attended the game and celebrated on the field with him because he was raised by his grandmother. It was really a great scene. It was the first time a perfect game had been pitched against a team with the best record in the majors at the time. The Tampa Bay Rays were 22-8 and at the time. He's got it. Throw to first. He did it. He did it. Dallas Braden has thrown a perfect game. Holy cow. He did it. Wow. Unbelievable. Two out. Nobody on. Ninth inning. Bartlett's on deck. And Braden turns, he throws, and it's swung on a ground ball to short. Taken there, Pennington's got it, he throws, a perfect game! Dallas Braden has thrown a perfect game! The A's have beaten Tampa Bay, four to nothing. The kid from Stockton has done it for the A's. Dallas Braden's perfect game also only came 290 days after Burley's, the shortest period between modern-day perfect games, and a record that lasted just three weeks because we have the next one. And the next one was from Roy Halladay, uh, who was pitching for the Philadelphia Phillies and beat the Marlins 1-0. Halladay pitched his uh, second perfect game just 20 days after Braden's, the shortest period in between perfect games in the modern era. Only seven batters reached three ball counts against Halliday, and Halliday nearly pitched a second perfect game in the 2010 National League Division Series against the Reds, but gave up a walk to Jay Bruce, but he still ended up throwing a no-hitter in that game. Halliday is the second pitcher to throw a perfect game and win the Cy Young Award in the same season. Sandy Koufax did so in 1965. Everybody on their feet. Halliday's got his sides. The 1-2 pitch. Hit toward third. Castro has it. Spins. Fires. A perfect game! Roy Halladay has thrown the second perfect game in Philadelphia Phillies history. He faces 27 batters. He retires all 27. It's the 20th perfect game in baseball history and the second one this year. What a night here in South Florida as Roy Halladay has thrown a perfect game. He didn't crack a smile all night long. He can crack as many smiles and as many bottles of champagne as he wants to now. They call it Super Saturday here at South Florida. <laughs> well, when they called it that, I'm not sure if they expected this. All right, next came Philip Umber in 2012. He was pitching for the Chicago White Sox and beat the Seattle Mariners for nothing. The final out of Humber's perfect game came on a full count check swing third strike to Brendan Ryan on a ball that catcher A.J. Przinski dropped. And by the way, my least favorite player of all time is A.J. Przinski. As Ryan disputed with umpire Brian Rungi's decision that he had swung, Przinski threw the ball to first pace for the final out. As with Braden, Humber's perfect game was the first complete game of his career. And Humber is probably the, le probably the least known person to ever throw a perfect game. His lifetime major league record was only 16-23, and 23, which gives him the fewest career wins of any pitcher who has thrown a perfect game. Ryan, a day off for him today, but now he's got a chance... There's something special. He's swung. Krasinski 
He's got to throw it down. It's a perfect day for Philip Butler. On the 21st of April, 2012 in Seattle. The 20th perfect game in regular season history. How about that? White Sox win it four nothing on a perfect game. All right, next came Matt Cain, and this of course meant a lot to my family, who are big San Francisco Giants fans. This happened in 2012, the same season they won their second World Series, and they beat the Houston Astros 10 to nothing. So again, as I mentioned earlier, third baseman Joaquin Arias threw out Jason Castro for the final out on a chopped grounder that he fielded deep behind the bag. It was really a great play. Uh, Kane had 14 strikeouts, which tied Sandy Koufax for the most strikeouts in a perfect game. And Matt Kane's 125 pitches are the most ever thrown in a perfect game. He was also aided by an amazing running catch um, by Gregor Blanco in the seventh inning. It was a diving catch. But before that, Melky Cabrera in the sixth inning made a diving catch. And that same season, Melky Cabrera was suspended for <laughs> PEDs, which is called performing enhancing drugs. The Giants, who scored 10 runs, made it the highest-scoring perfect game. And home plate umpire Ted Barrett had also called David Cohn's perfect game, making him the only person to call two. But now looking into Buster Posey. One ball and two strikes. On the ground, Arias from deep third. Got him! And that's a perfect game! And the Giants mobbing Matt Kane on the pitcher's mound. What an unbelievable performance by Matt Kane. That's the 22nd perfect game. In Major League history, the last to do it was Philip Humber on April 21st of this year. And the first in the Giants franchise history. The 130th year of Giants baseball, Matt Kane, the first in all those many years to pitch a perfect game. Chelsea being escorted probably down to the field. And by no means was that last play an easy one by Joaquin Arias. Joaquin Arias, gold glove vote. That was a tough play. He got a tough hop, played it cleanly, and then a great throw. And Matt Kane with a, an appreciative hug for Joaquin Arias. Well, here's the play. He was tough catching it. And then he did not have a whole lot of momentum to first base, but in a sneaky trick by Belt as he put the ball in his back pocket. And the last perfect game that has been uh, pitched also came in 2012 by King Felix Hernandez, who pitched for the Seattle Manors, and they beat, again, the Tampa Bay Rays. This was the first perfect game in Seattle Mariners history and the franchise's fourth no-hitter. 
Hernandez's performance was highlighted by 12 strikeouts on a career-high 26 swinging strikes. In an on-field interview immediately following his last out, Hernandez has said he started thinking about the possibility of, of, the, of a perfect game in the second inning. And it was the third time in the past four seasons that the Tampa Bay Rays were on the losing side of a perfect game. The Seattle Mariners, Felix Hernandez, the 2-2. He got him! 34 years, 119 games. It's finally happened. A perfect game by a Seattle Mariner. It was done by the king, Felix Hernandez. The 23rd perfect game in Major League history. Third this year, Matt Kane of the Giants. Philip Umber did it here in Seattle against the Mariners. And now Felix Hernandez, he puts his name in the record books with a perfecto. All right, so those are all the official perfect games. But there were unofficial perfect games. And let me explain. So... On June 23, 1917, Babe Ruth, who was then a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, uh, walked the Washington Center's first batter, Ray Morgan, on four straight pitches. Ruth, who had already been shouting at umpire Brick Owens about the quality of his calls, became even angrier and, in short order, ejected. Enraged, Ruth charged Owens, swung at him, and had to be let off the field by a policeman. <laughs> Ernie Shore came in to replace Ruth, while catcher Sam Agnew took over behind the plate for Pinch Thomas. So Morgan, who was then caught stealing, the guy who got on base, uh, by the first pitch by the replacement pitcher, who then retired the next 26 batters. So all 27 outs were made by Shore when Shore was on the mound. But once recognized as a perfect game by Major League Baseball, this still counts as a combined no-hitter. So what had happened, if you, if you didn't follow this, is Ruth got basically kicked out on the first batter, and then his replacement came in and basically threw a perfect game. But since he didn't start the game, it's not considered a perfect game. On May 26, uh, 1959, Harvey Haddix of the Pittsburgh Pirates pitched what is often referred to as the greatest game in baseball history. I mean, that's... <laughs> Again, I'm getting this, but... Well, well, I'm getting this for somewhere else. But Haddix actually carried a perfect game through 12 innings against the Milwaukee Braves, only to have it ruined by an error by third baseman Don Houck which allowed Felix Mantilla, the leadoff batter, in the bottom of the 13th inning to reach base. Then a sacrifice by Eddie Matthews and an intentional walk to Hank Aaron followed. The next batter, Joe Adcock, hit a home run that became a double when he passed Aaron on the bases. So a whole bunch of stuff happened. Haddix and the Pirates had lost the game 1-0 despite their 12 hits in the game. They could not bring home one run. In the 12 perfect innings um, and 36 consecutive batters in a single game remains a record. On June 3rd, 1995, Pedro Martinez, who was then pitching for the Montreal Expos, had a perfect game through nine innings against the San Diego Padres. The Expos scored a run in the top of the 10th inning, but, but in the bottom, Martinez then gave up a leadoff double to Bip Roberts and then was relieved by Mel Rojas, who retired the next three batters. Martinez was therefore the winning pitcher, but he did not get the shutout or the perfect game or even a no-hitter. Now, this is the one that... Um, was really heartbreaking, not only for the pitcher, but also for the umpire. And if replay had been in effect, this would have been a perfect game. This would have been, there would have been 24 perfect games. So on June 2nd, 2010, Armando Galarraga of the Detroit Tigers was charged with a single when first base umpire Jim Joyce incorrectly ruled that Jason Donald of the Cleveland Indians was safe on an infield grounder. 
After the game, Joyce acknowledged his mistake, saying, I I just cost the kid a perfect game. I thought he beat the throw. I was convinced he beat the throw until I saw the replay. It was really a difficult thing because he was, you know, he's sobbing at the time. And, you know, there was a great scene when he actually saw Galarraga the next day and and they kind of had a hard time. I mean, Galarraga was very professional about the whole thing because, I mean, I would be furious. I mean, but what can you do? That's human error. Tyler Kepner of the New York Times wrote that the call had been so important and so horribly botched since the 1985 World Series. It was one of the worst calls, of course. That was the Don Deckinger play that I played when Metal Mike was on during the Beverly Hills Cop uh, episode. After Jason Donald had uh, advanced uh, to second base, or sorry, to he so Galarraga retired the next batter. Donald advanced to third base via de- uh, defensive indifference. And uh, he eventually pitched a shutout, but he should have had a perfect game. Well, here they come. The four-man umpiring crew is headed out to the field right now. Jim Joyce will be the home plate umpire. There is Jim Joyce crossing the threshold right now, and hopefully Tigers fans will give him a hand. You can see the emotion on the face of Jim Joyce. Oh, this is so amazing. Amazing. This is something that he has obviously never had to deal with in his career. He is trying to deal with it right now. He is trying to hold back the tears. And Jim Joyce is standing up like a man today, and he is calling balls and strikes, and he has just taken the lineup card. Not only is he standing up like a man today, but he stood up like a man last night after he made the call. Jim Joyce wiping away the tears as he takes the Tigers lineup card and the Indians lineup card as well. And here's a man that has been umpiring in the major leagues for over 20 years. He has seen it all. And he has done it all, but he has not done what happened last night and has not experienced that. And now a hand for Armando Galarraga as he walks back. What a special moment here today. All right. So hopefully you're still awake. I had fun doing all this. Hopefully you enjoy baseball. Baseball is one of the best sports ever. Anyway, hopefully you see for love of the game. And if not, well, I'm sure I'll do another baseball movie that you like down the road. All right. This is Brian signing up. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Me- <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff, and yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to TeePublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to TeePublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. 
If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for damn good movie memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbeam. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world, and it's my number one podcast, signed by Science. Now, and then Science also said... Science! Science also said, my second favorite podcast is, it doesn't matter, the rest suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science!